G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman, and today we're returning to the case of Wallace versus Rudick. In a previous podcast episode named Looks Like Elder Abuse But Is It, I looked at this case of Wallace versus Rudick, which was appealed and the decision was handed down on the 7th of September this year. So please refer to that previous episode for the facts of the case. In this episode, I'm just going to update you on what has happened with the appeal. The parents, Yuri and Olga Wallace, appealed the decision of the court. In their appeal, they argued that the primary judge made three mistakes. First mistake was the finding that there was no binding agreement for the parents to reside on the ground floor of the home for the rest of their lives. Second mistake, assessing the compensation they should receive based on the property being worth 950000 instead of 1050000 or the value of the property at the time of the court proceedings. And third mistake, ordering that the parents pay their daughter's legal costs on an indemnity basis. So let's look at that first one. The court's decision that there had been no binding agreement that the parents could reside in the property for the rest of their lives. And this was based in part on the reliability of the witnesses and the fact that the judge found Mr. Wallace not to be very reliable. The Wallaces argued that the finding that Mr. Wallace wasn't a reliable witness was misconstrued. They referred to the fact that when asked during the trial whether he owned any other property, Mr. Wallace said no, when in fact he owned land in Victoria. The Wallaces argued on appeal that this was a communication error, that Mr. Wallace hadn't understood the question because the use of the word property instead of land. The appeal court said that this may have been the case, but the purpose of the question was to demonstrate that Mr. Wallace had lied to legal aid, who had been representing him up until they found out that he owned property in Victoria. He had failed to disclose this asset to legal aid, who look at a person's assets to determine if they are eligible for legal aid in the first place. The appeal court noted that the primary judge had the benefit of watching the Wallaces in person to be able to judge their credibility. But further to this, all the documentary evidence supported Susan's account of events and not the Wallaces. Once it is accepted that the Wallaces lacked credibility, the other evidence was critical. This included the license agreement that the Wallaces had been provided and didn't sign. The fact that they were given the license agreement to stay at the property for 12 months was evidence that the agreement was only for 12 months and not forever. Even though they didn't sign the agreement, they knew what it said, and by going forward with the transfer can be assumed to have accepted those terms. They tried to argue that they didn't understand the license agreement, but it was only two pages long and it was pretty straightforward. They would be able to live on the ground floor unit for a year paying $1 a month and after that the license could be terminated by Suzanne giving them one month's notice. The appeal court noted that the Wallaces could have tried to argue a stopple by acquiescence, basically arguing that Suzanne knew that her parents assumed they could live in the house for life and that by not correcting this assumption she was in effect agreeing to it. However, they didn't make that argument of their case so the court wasn't going to give it consideration now. On to their second argument about the value of the property. The contract for sale listed the house as worth $1,050,000 at the time of the transfer, but there was also a valuation stating that it was worth $950,000, and this higher value was only used so that the bank would give Suzanne a mortgage. During the court hearing, there was only one valuation put into evidence, 
the one stating the value to be 950000 The parents could have obtained their own valuation, but they didn't. They could have made an objection of the valuation of 950000 but they didn't. It was therefore open to the judge to rely on the value of the property being 950000 because no other evidence was put before the court. You may recall that using this value of 950000 the court ordered Suzanne to pay her parents the difference, so she got the mortgage for 840000 so she just had to pay the balance to them. And all up, she was ordered to pay them $124,000. The Wallaces argued that Suzanne should have been also ordered to pay interest on the amount from the time of the transfer. However, the appeal court noted that the Wallaces had lived in the house since the date of the transfer, and hadn't paid rent, rates, or any contributions to outgoings, which kind of negated any interest they would have been entitled to. The court upheld the primary judge's order. And on to their third complaint, which was that they were ordered to pay their daughter's cost. So the Wallaces argued that it was wrong of the judge to order that they pay their daughter's legal cost. After all, they had won the case. And while it was true that they had won their case in the sense that the judge had ordered that the daughter pay them the balance of the purchase price, they had lost their case in relation to the main argument, which was that they had a right to live in the house for the rest of their lives. That was their main argument and they absolutely lost. The daughter's cross-claim was also successful. She had applied to the court for her parents to move out of the house and for her to be able to have possession of the house, and the court awarded that. So you could almost say that the daughter was just more successful than the parents in these legal proceedings. Therefore, the appeal court upheld that the judge was right to order that the Wallaces pay their daughter's legal fees. Let's have a look at some lessons from this case. When we're dealing with these interfamily monetary cohabitation arrangements, there are a couple of lessons we can take from it. And the first is get it in writing. Verbal is never enough. It's never adequate. Just get something in writing. Obviously, uh, legal documents the best, but emails, text messages, just get something in writing. And secondly, the document matters. So sometimes you'll hear someone say, don't worry about what the document says, we know what we're agreeing to. Or the document is just formalities, we'll stick to our own agreement. You could almost see that argument being made in this case where the Wallaces said it didn't matter what the license agreement said because they had their own different agreement. So if you have a document, the document matters, what it says matters, and you need to make sure it's correct. It is frustrating and is even worse when you actually get something in writing, but it's not what you want, that it's not correct. The document is evidence. It is greater evidence than any verbal agreement because you're not relying on someone's vague remembrance of what was said or deciding whether a party is lying or not. You have the written words in front of you and they don't lie. They can sometimes be poorly drafted, unclear, contradictory, but they can't be forgotten and they can't be a lie. Unless we're talking about forged documents and that's an entirely different matter. Getting it in writing gives both sides a chance to look at it and ask themselves, is that what I really meant? If not, we need to reword it. Also consider getting everything that has been discussed verbally into writing. Did we talk about who was going to do the yard work? Okay, we need to include that. Why not include it in the document? Everything that was said. It may lead for a very long document, but at least it can prevent some confusion down the track. My third tip would be not all agreements have been spoken. 
So we make assumptions based on people's behavior and what we know about them. In this case, Susan admitted that even if her father didn't expressly say that he wanted to live in the house for the rest of his life, she knew that that was what he wanted. She knew it based on his behavior and she knew it because she knew him. So even what is said verbally isn't the whole story. When we force ourselves to put it into writing, we can realize that something we believe might actually not have actually been said and we can confirm those assumptions and expectations we have with the other side. Okay, tip number four. This isn't about lack of trust. It's about lack of memory. So often people, family members, will refuse not to get anything in writing because they think it shows that they don't trust the other party. What it should show you is that you shouldn't trust your own memory. Everyone's memories fades, regardless of age. I won't remember the exact words I said to my parents last week, let alone last year or 10 years ago. So when people enter into these family arrangements, why do they expect that they'll remember exactly what was said years down the track? And if you need the court to uphold the agreement, why do you expect them to believe your word on the matter over the other sides? They might remember things differently, and who's to say that you're not the one remembering it wrong? Tip number five, do it for the relationship. I am a solicitor telling you to get a legal document and immediately people are like, you're only telling us that so you get money. No, do it to protect the relationship. Getting the agreement in writing can be seen as indicating that there isn't trust or love in the relationship, but it's actually the opposite. View the relationship as so valuable and so important that you need to protect it. Don't let misunderstandings and misconceptions tear the relationship apart. Instead, record the agreement with a document that you can refer to down the track if a disagreement crops up or if people can't remember exactly what they agree to. The document may be able to stop any argument in its tracks and may avoid legal proceedings which can result in the loss of a once vital and close relationship. My final tip, don't let it be about money. So when people start looking into documenting a granny flat agreement or a cohabitation agreement or a family loan, they might be put off by the legal fees involved. You might be looking at several thousand dollars to get the agreement just right, especially when both sides need to get their own independent legal advice. And so some people might think, nothing's going to go wrong, why should we spend all this money? But really, if something goes wrong, it's going to cost you a lot more. Legal proceedings are incredibly expensive. They go for many months, if not years, and the money you would pay for this agreement is a pittance compared to what you would lose down the track if something does go wrong, which it very well might. And also, I still think the relationship itself is worth so much more than any of the money and is worth protecting. So went off on a bit of a tangent there, but this case just really digs into why I am so pro getting a cohabitation agreement or a granny flat agreement, get it in writing and protect those vital family relationships. If you have any thoughts on this appeal, on the decision of the court, would love to hear them. If you've got ideas of cases for me to cover as well, happy to hear those as well. And you can email them to elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. If you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you can call 1800 353 374. Or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 0243 24